November 1st, 2015, lecture discussion number 218 on the book of Romans. I have confirmation from independent sources that 218 is correct. Well, we're going to be continuing last Sunday's approach. Essentially, again, addressing uh, unconnected pieces, or what seem to be unconnected pieces, with the goal of uh, putting them into nice, neat rows of boxes. And I plan to put the boxes uh with ribbons, and and again, all of you know that's not going to happen. But I'm going to proceed with the intention of putting this stuff in a nice, neat little pile for you. As in, And I know it's improbable, and I don't ever do it, and don't write me letters. But along these lines, as an example, as fortune would have it, I received a question last week, uh, a question on consciousness by proxy uh, from Little Bonnie. And she had... Big Bonnie asked the question for me. And so here's where I'm saying, hi, little Bonnie, in case this gets to her. It should be noted that little Bonnie is larger than big Bonnie. Obviously, little and big are relative terms, and they have no application to the actual size of the individuals. The nicknames that I employ here at Cliffside have no association with reality. Bill the Cow is not actually a cow. This is for you folks on the Internet, mostly. Supper Dave is not edible. The one-eyed fat man has two eyes. Uh, in case you were wondering, uh, Bill the Fast, he does eat. Just a second here. Pterodactyl is flightless. She can't fly. And then, of course, Crazy Becky. Um, well, Crazy Becky is crazy, <laughs> as you all know. Yes, sir. I'm, uh, oh, 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 no, it does not. <laughs> anyway, little Bonnie didn't realize that, uh, didn't really ask about consciousness and its implication. Uh, what she apparently really wants to discuss is zombies. And zombies are, are particularly popular nowadays. But you should know that zombies are intimately intertwined with human understanding, mental life, if you will. Set aside the Hollywoodian, that's the word it is now. Get rid of the Hollywood stuff. Get rid of the concepts uh, from the popular culture about zombies for a while. And instead, consider philosophical zombies. Philosophical zombies, zombies uh, serve a useful purpose. They provide, some means, uh, they provide a means to solving the mysteries of consciousness or the mystery of self. The existence of the soul, the definition of knowing. All of the aforementioned have direct connective elements. Excuse me, with Luke 17.32, remember Lot's wife, the pillar of salt. Now, along with little Bonnie's concerns about zombies, this coincidence would likewise rear itself. Jennifer from Arizona who probably resides in Arizona. We can't really prove that she does. We'll take her word for it. But she could be in Muldoon, for all we know, right? And she could be a spy. Anyway, Jennifer from Arizona sent me an email-y thingy regarding the second mention of salt in Scripture, Leviticus 2.13. And I say second mention, realizing fully that Genesis 14.3 is a post-Genesis 19, 19 reference. 
And that, therefore, it has its own category, if you will. In other words, Genesis 14.3 is before Leviticus 2.13. Actually, before um, Genesis 19 completely, but it is a post-Genesis 19 reference. So that's why I'm calling Leviticus 2.13 the second mention. That makes no sense to anybody. That's okay. My goal is to make it make sense to somebody. All of that to say that Lot's wife simultaneously sends the student of Scripture to evaluate all pillar references and all salt references. The first salt reference, again, being Genesis 19.26. What, what I'm trying to say is, is that the right thing to do is what Jennifer from Arizona did. She knew that Lot's wife is essentially the first mention of salt. And the first mention, by the way, of pillar. And so Jennifer began to go and collect all the salt references. The second one, if you discount Genesis 14.3, and we won't, but we will, is Leviticus 2.13. Thanks for laughing. But anyway, the point of this is that go and find all the pillar references and all the salt references in order to figure out the mystery that is Lot's wife. And the, the most, in the first, the, the most certainly, the one that you should look at, of course, if you're looking at pillars, is Exodus 13, the pillar of cloud. And if you're going to look at salt, then you have the grain offering of Leviticus 2. Those are the second mentions of pillar and Salt. So if you've got the first mentions, go look at the second mentions. Pillar and salt. It would seem prudent to consider Exodus 13 with Leviticus 2 in order to dissolve Luke 17.32. Which is, of course, remember Lot's wife. Which then you would now understand Genesis 19.26. Or at least it seems that way to me. It would. Anyway, Jennifer was wondering about the grain offering. So I brought her a little email. It's very short. You'll like it. Uh, from Gen- Jennifer from Arizona. No subject. Sent on the 29th of October to Cliffside Office at Alaska.net. That's us. And she writes, Leviticus 2.13. Hmm. I did not know there was a salt covenant. Jennifer was wondering about the grain offering, which I submit uh, is an intended designation or destination. I think that it is uh, the most informational location that that we go to, that we must go to. As soon as you're done with reading about Lot's wife in Genesis 19, then you go to Leviticus 2.13. That would be the right way to proceed, in my view. Because the goal is that incredible, mysterious commandment, uh, if you will, from God himself in Luke 17.32. Remember Lot's wife. So, congratulations to Jennifer. Uh, balloons and cake and a pocket watch and a frame cer- certificate. Are, we have already sent them to Jennifer. No, we didn't. We did not. But if we did, we would. But we didn't, for the rest of you on the Internet. 
What Jennifer has done, though, with her raising of the grain offering is to really accelerate the process a bit uh, for me as well, because I was going to put it off another couple of weeks, but because of her, it's her fault. You can blame her. Everyone can boo now in unison. Anyway, the five-fold offerings are a totality. There are five of them. There are five parts that comprise the whole. The whole is going to be who? It's going to be Jesus Christ, as it always is. Everything is a portrait of Jesus Christ in some way. Most everything in the Old Testament. He certainly is on every page. I can't say that enough. But the fivefold offerings, just like the feast days, just like any of the other, the sevenfold cleansing provisions, all of those things are pictures of Christ in a totality. They're five pieces, seven pieces, add them all up, and you get some aspect of the person or the redemptive work of Jesus himself. The meal offering, also called the meat offering, also called the grain offering, is the second of the fivefold. I have the burnt, the meal, or the grain. Let me put them up. I have the burnt. I have the meal, sometimes called the meat, but there's no meat in it. So I don't like to call it the meat, so let me get rid of it. But you should know that many people wrongly call it the meat, and it's really the grain, if you will. Meal and grain will work. Then after that, of course, comes the the peace offering, then the sin offering, then the trespass offering. So I have five of them. The totality of them gives me a picture of Christ. Individually, they give me five aspects of Christ. That is where we are now, because it is the second mention of salt. So, needless to say, that the fivefold offerings are a lifetime of study. We could spend the rest of my life just here and go nowhere else. Lot's wife, salt, is in here. Salt takes you to the second, the grain offering or the meal offering. Everything in that offering must contain salt. Everything. It's got to include salt. Salt is omnipresent, if you will, in the second of the fivefold offering systems. Honey is prohibited. And leaven is prohibited. So those two... Can't do it. But salt, have to do it. Salt cannot be left out. Let me put it this way. You can't forget the salt. Remember the salt. Salt clearly has great significance to God, to Jesus Christ, Jesus God. Great significance to him. Lot's wife is the pillar, the pillar of salt. Is there any other person described as a pillar of salt other than Lot's wife? She is the pillar of salt. Salt is critical to the second of the fivefold offerings. Why does the nation of Israel need to remember the salt? Why do they have to remember the pillar of salt? Before we take some of this on, before we wade into the offering system, and again, this is really deep water, by the way. This is the advanced section, if you will. I can't remember. I think it was Adina's husband that 
wrote something about about Cliffside being the accelerated class or words to that effect. Uh, this is really where it is. This is amazing where we're headed. This is strong swimmers only territory. Uh, it's real easy to drown in those fivefold offerings. But I got to go back to Genesis 14:3 because it's very important. Let me read it to you. I'll start in, in verse one of 14. And it came to pass on the days of of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shedalamalar, king of Elam, and title king of the nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom. So I have a name of a guy that's the king of Sodom. His name is Bera. By the way, he's killed. By the way, he shows up again after he's dead. So it isn't him. It's somebody else. Who is the second king of Sodom? We'll get to that in a minute. All and then Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shimmer king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim. That is the Salt Sea. That's the reason I'm reading it to you. It's the valley of Siddim. Is, is the Salt Sea. Or if you will, the Dead Sea. I know that looks like an 8, but it's really an S. I don't know what it looks like. There, that helps. In the 14th year, Shedalamalur and the kings that were with him came and attacked. I'm going to skip some areas here. They came and attacked. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Abna, Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle at the valley of Siddim. So this huge army that is led by a man named Shedalamalor is coming to attack uh, the valley of Siddim, the Sodom-Gomorrah area, which as you know at this time is a plush, lush Beautiful place. However, God says back in verse 13 of chapter 13, the, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So this is, this is the highest level of sin that you can imagine was going on in this beautiful area. Shedalamalur is coming to attack and he is bringing a huge army with him. And these, these kings meet in the valley of Siddim with their army and they're going to uh, they're going to confront Shedalamalur and try to stop him. It doesn't work. Shedalamalur destroyed them and he killed the king of Sodom there. It says in verse 19, now the valley of Siddim, um, asphalt pits. So Siddim and asphalt pits fit together and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, fell there. Now some of your Bibles will have the word some because they can't figure out how the king of Sodom could die in verse 10 and 14 and then all of a sudden show up again uh, in verse 22 of chapter 14. So they put in the word some. It's in italics. Whenever you see a word in italics, it means what? It's not there. Get rid of it. Cross it out. Everywhere you see it, cross it out. Now, the valley of Siddim was asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were killed in the valley of Siddim 
by the army of Shedelamalar. Then they, the, the armies of Shedelamalar, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions, possession, provisions, I'm sorry, and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. So they took Lot and Lot's stuff. Who do you think was with Lot? Took his family, right? Took his wife. Then one who had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth tree in Mamre. So somebody came and told Abraham, called Abram here. Now when Abram heard that his brother, actually the his, uh, excuse me, uh, brother's son, his nephew, was taken captive. He armed his 318 trained who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abraham goes after this massive army of Shedelamalar and he's got 318 people that are from his house. And of course, if you've read the story, he is... Uh, he attacks them by night, and he wipes them out, and he brings back all of the people, Lot and his good, and his goods. And then this wonderful statement, verse 16, let me read it. So he brought back all of the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now, I love that verse because it differentiates, draws a distinction between women and people. I think that's very valuable to know theologically. There's evidence there of something. I can't wait for my mail. <laughs> okay. All of that happens. Abraham is coming back now. He's got Lot. He's got Lot's family. He's got Lot's wife. I think it is obvious that that's the case. Then Melchizedek, king of peace, king of Salem, Remember, Jerusalem means Jehovah Jireh Salam, Jerusalem. Jehovah provides peace. That's the name of Jerusalem. So here we have Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's a communion service. He, the priest of the God Most High. So he is both a king of peace and he is the high priest of God. That is impossible. It is impossible for a human being to be both. So this is not a human being. This is Melchizedek. This is Christ himself. And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. So there we learn that God is the possessor of all things. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here is somebody that can bless God. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, so somehow I've got a king of Sodom again. So I have Jesus Christ and the king of Sodom, Abraham, Lot, Lot's wife, and all these other people and all these goods. And we'll get to that story a little later. That's all as far as I wanted to do. 
I have Lot's captivity. Lot is captured. Abraham organizes 318 of his ser- servants born in his house, overcomes this massive army, Shedalamalor, who eventually you'll find is a portrait of Antichrist. I have the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are killed. Melchizedek shows up. And now the king of Sodom shows up, so I have now the real king of Sodom, don't I? I have Satan and Christ and Abraham Abraham, and the rescued people in their midst. That's what's going on in Genesis 14. A very complicated event. I want you to notice that Lot and his wife would not have forgotten it. Ultimately, king of Sodom says... You take all of the stuff and give me the people. And Abraham says back to him, no. You take the stuff. We'll keep the people. And you recognize that God doesn't care about stuff. He cares about people. He owns everything, including the people. But you also realize that Satan doesn't care about stuff either. He cares about people. In the sense, he wants them all dead. One, God wants them all alive. Satan wants them all dead. Notice the only, the only beings that care about stuff is us. We care about stuff. I have, as you know, dogs. I have a dog that loves her chicken. She cares about her chicken, her little rubber chicken. Any other dog goes near her rubber chicken, she's 14 years old. She will do everything she can to kill that dog and get her rubber chicken back. She cares about stuff. I noticed that that relationship. (laughs) For you, I just want you to know, God does not care about it. Satan does not care about it. They care about people. And Abraham has that understanding there. Again, Very complicated, one that would have been impossible for Lot and his wife to forget. Thus, Genesis 14 plays an important role in remembering Lot's wife. Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High and the king of peace himself, Melchizedek, who has no beginning or no end, the book of Hebrews tells us, is it not obvious that Lot's and Lot's wife saw Melchizedek? They saw him face to face. They couldn't have missed him. And Melchizedek shows up again, doesn't he? In Genesis 19. There he is again. They don't call him Melchizedek there, but it clearly is Melchizedek. He shows up Genesis 14 and Genesis 19. All of that to say that Lot and Lot's wife would never have forgotten Melchizedek, who is actually Christ himself. It's a theophany or a Christology or pre-incarnate Christ, whatever term you use. But the whole point of today is the salt sea. Sodom is the salt sea. In other words, Sodom was once a plain where huge armies gathered. But Genesis 19 The Siddim Valley is beneath what? The Salt Sea. That becomes a very important detail. Set it aside for that. But for today, note that detail and note that Lot and his wife physically saw Melchizedek. Okay? So far, so good. 
So erase all of that and move on to the grain offering. Go to Leviticus 2.11 through 13. <coughs> Excuse me. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. So, by the way, whenever you see leaven, immediately go to Matthew 13.33. Leaven is a symbol for leprosy, also a symbol for sin, which are the same thing. But remember the woman in the parable of the woman who mixes the leaven with the bread, right? You do not mix leaven. You shall burn no, no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. Now, honey will take you to Samson. Judges 14, 5 through 14, where Samson kills a lion. It's the riddle of Samson. So we're going to have to deal with Matthew 13, 33, parable of the woman, uh, and um, Judges 14, 5 through 14, the riddle of Saul, Saul, Samson, sorry, because no leaven and no honey can be put in the grain offering. You shall not allow them to continue reading. As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall burn, offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. For all your offerings you shall offer salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of, the, of, you, of your God to be lacking. Obvious question, why not? Salt and everything. That pretty well sums up my eating habits, by the way, as a side note. I'm trying to be theologically sound here as I eat potato chips and popcorn typically for breakfast every day. Okay, that's not totally true, but it, it's, it seemed to be partially true. Fortunately, Lori wasn't here to dispute any and all of that. But obvious question, why does God say the salt and the salt of the covenant? What does salt symbolize to God? Okay, now we're moving to uh, Numbers 18, 19. We're just going in order of salt as much as we can but particularly with respect to this offering. All the heave offerings of the holy thing are the holy things which the children of Israel, and yes, I did say it holy thing on purpose, all of the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. And now finally, Second Chronicles. Thirteen. Second Chronicles thirteen five. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, 
by a covenant of salt? It's a question. Let me put it this way. Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? The, uh, it seems like a rhetorical question, so the answer would be, no, they don't know that. The Lord God gave dominion over Israel to David forever. So what do we have here? Salt is in the bloodless offering. The grain offering or the meal offering is the bloodless. Put that on the board. Whoopsies, almost stripped and broke my neck again. Bloodless offering. The one without any blood in it. So, the bloodless sacrifice. And salt is clearly the emphasis material, or the emphasized material of the bloodless sacrifice. It has to be present. It cannot be omitted. There is a covenant of salt. And it's forever. And there is a there's dominion over Israel that is guaranteed by the covenant of salt. You know that the dominion over Israel will happen. You know that it is guaranteed because of the covenant of salt. And obviously, what do we have here? We have the beginnings of a list. And list makers are going to list. It's what we do. The first mention of salt outside of the salt sea of Genesis 14.3, which is after Genesis 19. Does that make any sense at all now? The first mention of salt in Scripture is, of course, Lot's wife. So she begins our list. And to repeat, Lot's wife has this extraordinary double characteristic. I, I can't even say it enough to you. She is identified with salt and with pillars, two of the great symbols in the Bible. Okay, so here's our list. Number, or letter A. Lot's wife is salt. Salt is in the bloodless offering. Why do we have a bloodless offering? Why is this one the bloodless offering? And why is salt in the bloodless offering? A bunch of questions we're going to have to unravel as much as we can. Salt cannot be left out. I said, remember the salt, right? Don't forget the salt. Cannot be lacking. Salt is an everlasting covenant. We have a salt covenant. And it's everlasting or forever. So if I got rid of the word covenant, salt is everlasting. Whenever I say the words everlasting, something is everlasting or something is forever, what do you think? Yeah, salvation immediately. So I want you to repeat. Look at this list and start thinking about how this all fits together. Salt 
is pure white. There's a purity element to it. Purification. Uh, Salt, the salt covenant. So let me go back here. The salt covenant is irrevocable. There's an enduring permanence aspect to salt. So, an irrevocable element, an enduring element, a permanence element that has to do with salt and it directly applies to the salt covenant. But salt also has that apart from the covenant aspect. It's a characteristic of salt. Salt is, number one thing that it is, is what? It's a preservative. It retards the corruption process. The church, us, believers, are called salt. We are the salt of the earth. We are the preservers. We are slowing the corruption of the decay of the earth. Lot's wife is called. Keep that in mind. There's a durability. It's flavor. Let me let me put it this way: a stability would probably be better. There's a flavor, durability, or stability to salt. Okay. Now I'm going to skip one here because I want to save it for last. J. I'm going to put K. I'm going to leave J and put it in the bottom. Okay. Uh, salt is a pillar. So pillar of salt. I'll separate them. I make an equation out of it. I'll do it next week. These two are together. And there's a reason they're together. They add up to something. Salt plus pillar equals what? So I take what pillar means. I take what salt means. I put them together. She is the salt pillar, Lot's wife is. So she's two things. Salt and a pillar they're individual. They're also can be added together. So we have to deal with that. And then, of course, the salt sea. I have a salt sea. And now my favorite. One thing about salt. When you pour it on an offering and you light it on fire, what happens? This is the one that I think is the most important. Oh, that's not true. They're all incredible. But this is the one that's going to help you the most. Salt does not burn. Salt does not burn. So whatever position you have, With regard to salt, you have to know it does not burn. 
All that remains for us to do now is to make the application of that list to Luke 17.32, which, as you know, remember Lot's wife. First and foremost, Lot's wife did not burn in Sodom. I can't emphasize that enough. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife did not burn in Sodom. Lots of people know that. Very few Christians know that. If I say Lot's wife to most churches, they would all say, oh yeah, she, she was an idiot. God killed her. And she died in Sodom. She's foolish. Selfish. She wanted stuff. This is a woman that saw the debate between, not debate, saw the confrontation between Melchizedek Christ and Satan saw the discussion over the people and the stuff. She did not go back for her stuff. What did she go back for? The people. What people? Well, you can decide that, but she did not make it. She did not burn in Sodom. Some people that are outside the church, the Jewish folks, obviously they they understand. Remember Lot's wife, to them, means that Lot's wife did not burn. To the Christians, unfortunately, we have it completely upside down, constantly. The fact that Lot's wife did not burn in Sodom, that salt does not burn, that alone should put you on the right path to understanding what Christ is saying to the nation of Israel, his nation. Okay? Now, I want to change directions somewhat. So there's your list. There's your homework assignment for next week. I'm not really changing direction, though. It seems like I am. Somewhat is, uh, is the operative term. But here we are now to where uh, little Bonnie's question comes in. Our soul spirit, as manifested by the existence of our mind, or our self, our knowing things, our awareness, by our mental life, okay, I'm defining soul spirit for you. Your soul spirit is the fact that your mind exists, yourself, you have knowledge, you have awareness, you have a mental life, a consciousness. Your, my consciousness, our mental selves, all of that is not like anything else. There is nothing else like consciousness. You can't say consciousness and this is the same. Consciousness is alone. There is nothing like it. Our consciousness is not in any way similar to anything that is physical, that is material. It is totally different. Consciousness is different. It is distinct. It is completely unlike anything that is physical. Anything in the physical realm. And this is a subject I've covered many, many times. As you know, let the drooling commence. So, what does that have to do with Lot's wife being remembered? Well, in, it is my opinion demonstrated by her act of returning or attempting to return, 
that Lot's wife, a witness to Melchizedek and Satan. Lot's wife knew something. She understood something. And that explains her motive and her actions. So the question of Lot's wife is, what did she know? You're talking about knowing. I don't want to... Let me put it up here. In its own little box. It is important for every one of us, all of us, to begin to define knowing. What is knowing? Knowing is a profound event. We should want to know what she knew. Anyway, this is ultimately, this is the question of the origin of consciousness. How can a physical system come to possess this defining, completely distinct mental capacity? Let me put it this way. How do we know? Why do we know? How did we, how do we get knowing? Why did we get knowing? Where does knowing come from? It is completely unphysical. There is nothing like it. Consciousness, again, there is nothing like consciousness. Now, the physicalists, um, the, 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 the monists, their scientific dogma, if you will, has been recently presented as, as they have convinced themselves and convinced many uh, but they are convinced that our conscious experience doesn't, isn't distinct, that it is emergent from the physical systems. For example, your self-awareness, your knowing, your understanding comes from your brain. And I am saying to you, no, it doesn't come from your brain. It can't come from your brain. What your consciousness does is use your brain to analyze information. The, the brain provides physical information, which the mind then inten, uh, in, uh, assigns intentionality and meaning to. But the physicalists say, no, no, the brain somehow causes the mind or the soul or knowing or understanding or awareness to come out. It emerges from the brain. And they say that consciousness is nothing more than chemical collisions inside the physical brain. And if you accept this premise, if you say, well, they're probably right, that's where my self comes from. By the way, if you're dependent upon the brain and the brain dies, you're dead. And the Bible says the opposite of that. The Bible never, never, never calls you a physical machine. It always calls you a living soul. You are a living soul that uses a physical machine. If you accept the premise that chemical collisions inside the physical brain cause this thing that we call consciousness that nothing else is like, if you accept that premise, then you have a zombie problem. You see, zombies are an issue for the monistic evolutionists. The last thing that the monistic evolutionists, the physicalists, those with physical uh, 
that, that reduce everything to physical particles. The last thing they want to see is discussions about zombies. Because they have no explanation for zombies. If zombies are a conceptual potentiality, and they are, we have movies about them. Somebody has conceived them. Somebody says, oh look, this is a zombie. What do zombies do? If I asked you, if I put a picture on the, on the board up here and, and said, what is that? You would go, it's a zombie. If I put a picture of a zombie up there, you know what a zombie is. Or you think you do. Again, cast aside Hollywood. Zombies have, we can conceive of a zombie. And zombies are indeed something that we do conceive of. The concept that consciousness is a function of the brain. If you can conceive that conscious, a zombie, and you can, con- then you have this problem. If, con- if zombies could exist conceptually, then the concept that consciousness is a function of the physical brain, it emerges out of the brain. The very fact that you can conceive the existence of a zombie, renders the concept that consciousness emerges from the brain false. So when you can think of a zombie as existing, you have rendered emergentism false. It must be false. And I know, huh? I got it. Let me keep going here. Get rid of Hollywood. It's always a good idea to get Hollywood. Set down the walking dead, flesh-eating zombie nonsense. Just start taking the questions now. Philosophers over the years began a series of thought experiments. And they began to think about human beings, zombies, if you will, philosophical zombies. They considered, and I keep using the word zombie because it's popular and you understand it. They, They considered a zombie that is indistinguishable from a conscious human being. So I have, a, I have a conscious human being that has self-awareness. So they said, well, wait a minute. What if I have a human being that has no self-awareness, has no consciousness? And I put them side by side. Essentially, I have an automaton, a robot. But it's flesh and it's blood. But it has no consciousness, no self-awareness. Something that doesn't know. Can't know. Yet, still, it's fully anatomically identical to us. So again, I have the identical zombie and I have the self-conscious human being side by side. So I have a human without knowing that has no capacity to know versus a human that does know. Or, if you want, the incapability to know as opposed to the capability to know. One is registration. The other is direct knowledge, direct awareness. There is a difference between merely recording an event and applying meaning, as opposed to applying meaning and intentionality and memory. Computers register information, right? But they don't, they can't apply consciousness to it, knowing to it. They can regurgitate. They can give the impression of knowing, but they don't know. 
knowing beings understand information. They can apply meaning to it. So how does monistic evolution constructs, evolutionary constructs, account for understanding, account for wisdom, knowing? What is the evolutionary explanation for the usefulness of consciousness? See, because the evolution, by the way, the evolutionists will counter that, that comment I just made by saying that evolution doesn't have any concern for usefulness. It doesn't care if something is useful or not. This conceptual zombie that you're thinking about. See, I've made you think about a zombie, haven't I? You're conceiving one. This conceptual zombie has no awareness. He or she just zombies around, disconnected from the environment, They have no altruism, no morality of any kind. That, by the way, is a key truth. Evolution fundamentally is immoral. Not amoral, immoral. I'll prove that next week. Those of you who think it's possible to place the the Bible inside of an evolutionary system, you cannot do it. One's immoral, one is pure good. But I have this zombie has no self-conscious, has no knowing, but it can register information, applies no uh, parameters to that information. But the self-conscious human has the ability to examine the contents of its memory. So we are constantly self-examining ourselves. We can reach into our mind and see things and deal with them and put them into places. Our minds are, are ours alone, by the way. You don't know what my mind is doing. I don't know what your mind is doing. They're, they're secrets. We have ownership of our minds, sort of. The Bible, the words of our Creator, says without dispute that we can know. Know good and evil. We can do that. We have morality. We have experienced, we feel, we have the ability to learn, to remember. And all of that, the Bible says, resides in the immortal soul. None of that resides in the body. Lot's wife was supposed to be remembered because she knew something. That's the whole point. Remember what Lot's wife knew. Remember what Lot's wife remembered from her meeting that she had with Melchizedek and Satan. Remember what Lot's wife thought. Remember what Lot's wife prioritized. Remember what happened to her in the sense that she did not burn in Sodom. What was he telling Ultimately, the Jews in the tribulation. How are the Jews going to do in the tribulation? How many are going to be slaughtered? Lots and lots and lots. If you don't know, if you don't know what Lot's wife knew, then you're paralyzed in this world. You're certainly paralyzed during the tribulation if you're a Jew. 
You've got to know what she knew. You've got to think how she thought in that sense. But Lot's wife is remembered for what she knew, not for what she did. Next week, we'll put it in a box and put a ribbon on it.